So we're going to grab our Bibles, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look to the Word of the Lord for encouragement, for wisdom, for direction, with inclined hearts and listening ears to hear what it is that He wants to say to each and every one of us. And before we launch in, let us pray. So Father, I do pray this morning as we gather that we would know the encouragement that comes first and foremost from your heart. Thank you that you are our encourager, that you're our helper, that you're our strength. And I thank you as well, Lord, that we walk this journey not alone, but with one another. And I pray that there'd be the encouragement this morning of joining together as your people, albeit across our city in different locations and homes, that there'd be that sense through your spirit of us being drawn together, united together as we incline our ears to hear what it is that you are saying to each and every one of us. And Lord, we pray in the midst of this season that you'd open our eyes, that you'd stir our hearts, that this would be not a moment to sit on the sidelines, but this would be a moment to press in, to see the fullness of what you have for us as your people and for each one of us personally. Even this morning during this time, Lord, I pray that you'd stir our hearts, you'd lead us, and you would speak to us this morning. We pray in the mighty and the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you say amen with me wherever it is that you are? Amen. Well, we're going to pick up our journey through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17. Let's read together from verse 16, remembering we've just seen this missionary journey begin in Thessalonica. We talked last week about the Bereans. And of course, everywhere Paul seems to go and proclaim the gospel, there's a stirring and an uprising of people against the message that he brings. And it says in verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them, the them is Silas and it's Timothy, Paul had gone ahead again as a result of some unrest that had been stirred up against him. And he finds himself in Athens. This is not a planned trip. This wasn't part of the schedule. It's not some divine download from the Lord. It just happens as he is uh, required to leave one particular region in a hurry, that he finds himself in Athens. But even there in this you know, seemingly accidental moment, the Lord has a purpose and a plan for him. It says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that this city was full of idols. So even as he's there, even in the midst of this unplanned, interrupted visit to the city of Athens, it says his spirit was stirred. Literally, the word means it was provoked within him. There's, there's something as he wandered around, his heart was moved. And it's interesting, isn't it? All the accounts and the times we read through Scripture that Jesus' heart was so often moved. He was moved with compassion. He was moved to heal. He was moved to preach and proclaim the gospel. And I wonder if sometimes one of the, the hindrances to us really moving with what the Lord has for us is that we become so desensitized. We become, become so um, apathetic to the circumstances and the situations around us. But it says here that he's moved, and we too, I believe, should be moved. There should be things around us. We should be continually asking and praying that prayer, Lord, would you move our hearts for the things that move Yours. Stir us where we need to be stirred. We don't want to be a complacent, apathetic 
people. So even in this interruption, the Lord stirs his heart, and it's in one particular area. It's in this area of he, he, he goes around and he sees a city full of idols. Now, when Paul arrived there sometime around the year 51, we believe, Athens was only a relatively small city. We're talking about 20,000 odd people. There was far bigger cities at the time within the region, Corinth being one example that probably had over 100,000 people. Athens had been a large, prominent city, but it was well past its prime politically and economically, although it was still prominent in one area, and, it, and that area was it was a centre of learning. There was this pursuit of philosophical truth, thinkers, seekers, and as we read, obviously, worshippers. In fact, one ancient writer tells us at this time, they estimate there was potentially as many as 30,000 gods that were worshipped in Athens. In fact, he goes on to say it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man. 20,000 people, potentially 30,000 different idols and gods. So you can kind of grasp this picture of Paul walking around and seeing idols and idolatry everywhere, and his heart is moved. Now, before we think, well, this is clearly a passage that doesn't apply to us in our Western, modern, progressive mindset, I would suggest that although the form of the idols change, that idolatry is something at the very heart and the core of what it means to be human. It's not if we will worship, it's just what we choose to worship. And I was reminded of that particular reality in a particular mission trip that we had traveling through central India as we'd gone over there to minister and encourage pastors. And one thing that's confronting for those who've been to India or many parts of Asia as a Westerner is the amount of idols. You'll see shrines, you'll see statues, you'll see offerings, literally along the side of the road, outside a, a house or a, a shop front. And it is confronting to see that sort of form of idolatry. And we had uh, traveled through this particular part of India. I'll share you my particular story about the degree to which the idols were so prevalent and present that it was impossible even to find a place to go to the bathroom without coming across idols. And if you'd like to ask me about that story later, you can. But in, in the midst of that conversation with a, a group of Indian pastors, I said to them at one point, having been a little confronted by the adultery and said, you know, it's interesting, but one of the big differences that I've noticed coming from comfortable Australia or Western environment is just the amount of idolatry that is present in your country. And I remember so clearly them in the midst of the conversation almost looking a little bemused and they said, well, it's funny you should say that because often we talk about the fact that the idolatry in your country is so much worse than the idolatry you see here. And I was taken a little back. I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, the simple reality is this. In your country, and they didn't mean Australia, they meant just in Western society in general, um, it, it's not so much idols and shrines that people worship, it's their stuff, it's money. And they said, the thing that always shocks us is it seems to be the Christians who are just as bad, if not worse, than the rest of the world. And so the truth is that there are idols, and in some ways we fall into this trap far more easily because they're, they're not as obvious. It's in some ways easier to avoid shrines and that kind of overt idol worship. But in our own culture, there are cathedrals of materialism, also known as shopping malls. 
There's the dogma of progressive secularism. There's the liturgy of humanistic atheist philosophies and its intellectual slavery to self. We worship ourselves. This is the ultimate progression of humanistic thought is that we've become our own God. We are the only God we need. You see, the form and the shape changes, but all of these, if you peel back the facade, are nothing more than idols made of human hands. It's not if we will worship, it is what we will worship. And so Paul is provoked as he sees this idolatry going on all around him, and he's provoked to do something. He's not just provoked to kind of sit back and think, well, you know, what's the point? There's 30,000 idols, where on earth will I start. Instead, he moves forward. It says in verse 17, so he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. How often? Every day with those who happen to be there. He's like, I've got to do something about this. And he didn't have an open ticket to you know, some meetings or crusades. He just knew that he had to share the truth and the light of the gospel. So he was moved. The synagogues, he said, I'll find some religious people in the marketplace. Every day his heart was motivated. I've, I've got to share. And, and in fact, he, the implication in the text is he didn't even go in there to preach some sermon. He just went in there to have conversations with whoever was there, just, just asking questions. I think sometimes we're, we're a little cautious of evangelism because we don't feel like we have the right answers. Sometimes it's far more effective just to come in with questions. And we're in the midst of a season where questions are really powerful and pertinent. Things like, hey, how are you doing in the midst of the current season we're in? You know, what is it that you're struggling with? What is it that you're finding? And, and, and you watch as you ask some of these questions, you may be surprised where they end up. There is an openness, I believe, in the midst of the season that we're in and we find ourselves in today, there's, there's an openness just to go in and ask questions, and if possible, if there's an open door to share the hope and the light of the gospel. And that's what happens. He just goes in. Every day with those who happen to be there, he's asking questions, he's having conversations. It says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, they conversed with him, he had a few conversations. Others said, oh, what does this babbler wish to say? And there's always going to be that response, isn't there? Some are open, some are not open. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, one says, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him before the Aragopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching, what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, that what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians, the foreigners who lived there, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So we see the scene said he's had conversations, and those conversations have led to an open door. They bring him to this particular place, the Aragopagus. It's where the council at that time would meet and reason, and it happened on top of a hill, which, of course, is why this particular passage is known as the, the Mars Hill passage or the Mars Hill sermon, a very important sermon of Paul's, and uh, one that is probably the most complete account we have in the book of Acts of how he preached, not within the synagogue or, if you like, to a religious people, but how did he preach in, in the context of the, the, uh, the Gentile or the non-religious setting that he found himself in. 
So it says in verse 22, and what we want to do is quickly just go through this. I want to give us some headlines. We're going to come back this morning and look at the big picture. And then I'd love to take a couple of weeks to really delve into some of these things because there's some rich truth and some important realities for us. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, he says, men of Athens, and this is interesting. This is how he begins. How would you begin then a sermon? He's moved, he's grieved, there's idolatry, there's this intellectual arrogance almost, he's just a babbler. How is it that you would frame and begin your message preaching in that kind of environment? It says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, it's, it's possible to read in there, and some do, you know, a, a, a bit of a, a sense of, um, what's the word, of him being critical of the environment that he finds himself in. I, I don't think there is at all. I think this is, this is a genuine, if you like, compliment or commendation of the reality that, that these were a seeking people, that there was a heart within them that desired to seek for truth. I perceive that you are very religious. You're seeking. You're genuinely looking and you're open. This, this is not coming from the wrong place. He's, he's genuinely beginning his sermon with a form of a compliment. He said, and in fact, you're searching to such a degree that you're, you're even creating altars to the unknown. Kind of sounds like a bit of an agnostic um, position, doesn't it? Well, we don't know, so therefore we'll formulate a whole position on not knowing. We'll formulate an idol to whatever else is there that might be there to discover that we're not quite sure of. And so he uses that then as his springboard to say, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let, let me tell you the end of your searching. Let me make things particularly clear. I see you're a searching people. This is what it is that you're looking for. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He begins with this place of God is the creator. There is one God and he created everything that we See, and so often Paul begins there, and there's much more we could say. We may come back to that particular point. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. He said not only has he created everything, he's created us, and he's created us with a purpose in mind, not just to randomly fumble our way through life. He's created us to know him. He's invited us into this incredible relationship with him that they should seek God. And yet he alludes here at the second half of verse 27 that something's gone wrong. It says, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. We're created to know him, and yet why, we would ask as we read this, well, why are we fumbling? Why is it not, why does it not seem clear and why, why is there some confusion as we feel our way towards God, even though he is not far from each one of us? Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So being God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is not like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
He's saying, this is not just an idol. He is a God who's invited us to know Him. We are His offspring. So shouldn't it be the pursuit of our life to seek after Him and discover who it is that He is? And then He gives us a solution and the answer. And bear in mind, this is more than likely just an abbreviated version of His sermon. Often these speeches would take an hour or two hours. So He's probably expounded on each and every one of these points in some detail. And he finishes with this. The times of ignorance God's now overlooked, but he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, he concludes by looking at this, the source of the separation being sin. There's a need for repentance, and yet he's a God who's come and made a way and called us to repent, and there will be a day of judgment coming. And then he finishes by saying, and God has proven who he is and what he's accomplished by raising Jesus from the dead. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting sermon, it's a fascinating sermon, and as I said, I'd love to spend some time delving into some of the intricacies of Paul's approach as he proclaims this reality of God. But here's, here's the big picture for us this morning. Here's what I really want to encourage our hearts with and remind us of as we kind of take a step back and look at that little passage of Scripture in its fullness. Here's Paul and he's gathered, there's the Epicurean, there's the Stoic philosophers, there's Athenians, there's foreigners, there's this idolatrous, intellectual, worldly society. He's, he's moved, he's grieved, not in a good way, but by the bad stuff that's all around him. And yet, how is it that he responds? What is the heart of his message? And I think if we were there, many of us would have this tendency to perhaps lay into a few of the idols. Well, let's tear down some of the, the false philosophies. Let's rebuke the corrupt systems of power. Now, there is times as we've looked through the book of Acts, isn't there, where Paul has to deal with stuff. He casts a demon out of the slave girl. He rebukes the blindness of the, uh, the false prophet who was in the, the court of the Roman proconsul. But here's the heart of Paul's message. Here's the spirit with which he's come, in which he comes and here is the centrality of his message. Rather than laying into the darkness, he preaches this glorious message about how great God is and how good this gospel is, this proclamation of good news that he came to bring to the earth. That's, that's his message. There is a great God and there's a glorious gospel. The futility of searching is no more. All that fumbling through the darkness has found its joyful conclusion in Christ. He's real. God's opened our eyes to see him. He's made himself known. He's invited us to know him. And he's proven that he is who he said he is through the resurrection. He's, he, he says as he gets this, this moment, this one moment, he says, let me give you the truth in all its glorious wonder about how great God is and how glorious and good this gospel is. You see, we live in many ways, as hopefully we've illustrated very briefly this morning, a similar society. And I think we should say, well, what is it that's the message that people need to hear? What is it that will cut through the idolatry, the intellectualism, the, the worldly society? 
What is it that will bring the weight of truth to bear? And as I said, there's, there's moments of dealing with issues, but centrally must be this proclamation of a great God and His glorious gospel, that pronouncement of good news. There is a time for dealing with stuff. There is a moment where we need to address issues. But remember, the Great Commission was never to go into all the world and preach the issues. It wasn't to go and proclaim the darkness. It wasn't a, a pronouncement of all the problems of the day. Let people know how bad everything is around them. It was a proclamation of good news. It was a light that was supposed to shine brightly in the midst of an ever-darkening surrounding. Let me take you to one more passage of Scripture really quickly, and then we'll bring this to a conclusion. I want you to jump over to a parable, and all I'm doing here is making exactly the same point again, just to make sure that we grab it. I want you to go to Matthew 13, verse 24. This, of course, is Jesus, and he's, he's telling parables. He's begun his ministry. He's just told the parable of the sower and the disciples have said, well, explain that one to us. And in verse 24 of chapter 13, he tells a parable that in my particular version, it's called the parable of the weeds. Some versions call it the parable of the wheat and the tares. It says this, Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, I'm sure the disciples have just heard the parable of the sower. There's no doubt in their mind at what's happening here. Jesus is the sower. And in fact, if you read on, Jesus gives us that exact explanation. In verse 36, he explains the meaning of this parable. He says, Jesus is the sower. So Jesus is this man who's gone to sow good seed in his field. Verse 25, it says, but while his men were sleeping. There's a sermon there. Who were the men And why were they sleeping? His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. That's what happens, isn't it? The seeds go in and, of course, wheat and tares. There's there's often no way to distinguish them until it gets close to the harvest. And all of a sudden, it's very obvious that the, the weeds are growing up in the midst of the wheat, the good in the midst of the bad. And so it says in verse 27, the servants see this. The servants of the master of the house come and say to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, "Then what do you want us to go and gather them? I mean, this is the most natural response, isn't it? They're seeing weeds in the field. Well, that must be our mission. That's our call. Do you want us to go and get rid of the weeds? Is, is that our call? But it says he rebukes them. No, do not go and gather them, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, as I said, Jesus actually explains this parable. He doesn't leave us questioning what are, what are, the, what are these different elements represent in verse 36. And very quickly, his explanation is this. He says, he is the man who goes and spreads the seeds. The seeds are the good news of the kingdom. The field is the world. So it's a parable not just here of the kingdom of God alone. or uh, it's, it's a parable in a broader sense of the world. 
And he says this parable is from now until the end of the age. It covers the span of time from when Christ would come until the end of the age. The wheat is the good seed, the sons of the kingdom. The tares or the weeds are the son of the enemy. And all humanity are in one of those two camps. There's no middle ground. There's no thinking ground. There's no uncertain ground. I'll just decide. You know, it's, it's one or the other. And the servants, of course, it says, do they want to pull up? And they're rebuked. And Jesus says, no, leave that for now because there will be a day. It's not that he's not concerned about the weeds. There is a day of judgment at which it says his, his angels would go and there would be a great dividing between the wheat and the tents. Now, the two points for us are simply this. Number one, Jesus tells this parable, I believe, for two reasons. Number one, to illustrate this fact that evil will coexist with good. In fact, not only will, will there be this duality with evil and good, we can read and glean from this parable that as it gets to, closer to harvest, the more obvious evil will become. See, sometimes we have this, you know, this false perspective that somehow there's going to be this, you know, evil will get less, less, less. That's not the context of this parable, and that is also not the reality of the teaching of Scripture. There is this picture that, yes, there will be a, a great harvest that comes forth. Yes, there will be a strengthening of kingdom purposes, but it's not in the absence of evil. Evil will rise with it. There will be a coexisting of good with evil until Jesus comes back. Yes? Got that one? The second one, and this is our point for today, and it's simply this. As the servants see this this rising of wickedness that's becoming quicker and quicker, their most obvious response is to go and pull the weeds. Should we go and get rid of the weeds? Is that our mission, Lord? Is that what you've called us to do? And he rebukes them and says, no, do not go and pull the weeds because in doing so you'll damage the very harvest itself. And I remember, this is probably four or five years ago now, reading that passage and having the Lord impressed so strongly upon my heart. And this is the message of the sermon, just put another way. And it's simply this. The Lord really encouraged my heart. And he said, you've got to make sure the heart of the mission is always about planting seeds, not pulling weeds. That's the message of this parable. It's that there will be evil and good. But our mission from this time forth is to go and proclaim good news. Our mission is always the planting of seeds, not the pulling of weeds. See, here's the problem. Sometimes we spend so much time criticizing, accusing, condemning, complaining that we don't have any time for what actually counts, which is telling people about the glorious wonder of this great God and his gospel. Sometimes, inadvertently, we actually let the evil one and his kingdom become our driving passion. That's never supposed to be our focus. The darker it gets, the more effective the opportunity the light has to shine. The days are, and I believe will get darker, which means our resolve must be stronger and our convictions clearer. What is crucial is that we remember our perspective. And as Paul stands up, with every opportunity to go after the weeds, with every after opportunity he has to, to tear into the darkness, to proclaim all the issues, he comes with a different heart. And he comes with that intention 
of planting seeds and of letting that light shine boldly and brilliantly in the midst of the city that he found himself in. Can we get the worship team here? I want to give us just one more thought and one more encouragement, which is on a different but similar tangent as we've reflected on Paul's response as his heart is moved, as the tendency that I believe that Paul would have had that all of us have as our hearts are moved to go after the weeds, to to let our Facebook feeds, to let our conversations, to let our lives be driven by all the problems, by, you know, proclaiming the the realities that, that are true. And I'm not saying that there is no place at all to deal with the issues. I'm just saying that as believers, we have a different narrative to live our lives by. We have a different message to proclaim. And here's the similar but different tangent, is not only is this picture of a great God and this glorious gospel, not only is it our message, but it's our hope. That is our hope that there is a great God who is accomplishing his great works. And I've noticed this this particular week, this past week in conversations that I've had, and this is not everybody, I know that. There's a lot of people who are who are doing particularly well and praise God that you know lockdown doesn't affect many of us. We continue to to just keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and continue to, to head towards his purposes and plans in this hour. But there is for many of us, and in, in my experience of having conversations with many of you, it's a greater percentage this time around in lockdown than it was, say, this time last year in the midst of the previous lockdown period we had. There's a number of people who really are struggling in that sense of being gripped by fear, of just that uncertainty of the... And perhaps it's the, the length of the lockdown as we now enter into a second year of, of pandemic and... You know, there's all sorts of COVID fatigue and you know, recognize of just the recognition of the toll that this sort of a season takes on people. Perhaps, perhaps it is the, the fact that it's been a longer period of time since we've really been able to connect with loved ones afar. Perhaps it's the, the increase of political posturing that we see all around us in different ways and shapes and forms. But there is that sense of of fear that is able and in many many cases is crippling us and causing us to keep our eyes off the Lord. And there's a simple story that I was reminded of and I'll finish with this as we bring our service to a a close. But there's this one moment when I was at the beach. I had two of my girls there and I think they were about five and six at the time. And we were staying at a beautiful campsite, Dalmini, which is just north of Naruma, a lovely part of the south coast, picturesque. And it's kind of one of those stormy overcast days and there's this big open beach break uh, just north of the campground at Dalmini, a little inlet and a beach that's known, it's, it's known for surfing. There's often some, some good waves there. So I had these two girls and we're on the beach and... A storm had just passed, but there was still the remnants of the cloud around. The waters were a little bit choppy, and it was decent-sized surf. It was The surf was, from my perspective anyway, safe enough for me to take the girls out and have a bit of fun. And so I said to them, come on, girls, we're going to head out in the waves. And one of them instantly, the, the moment she looked and she saw the storm clouds and the waves, and she said, no, just literally paralyzed by fear. I can't, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I, I'm not moving in, in 
at, out at all. You know, there's nothing you can do to, to make me move. I said, okay, sweetie, that's fine. If you want to sit on the, the, the seashore, that's okay. And I tried to coax her, but she was resolute in her convictions that she wasn't going out there. And the other girl, she grabbed my hand and we headed out and went deeper and deeper. And normally at this particular break, you've got to get some way out to get to the waves. And I was there with her. I was swimming. She was just on her, her little surfboard. And you know, it, was, it was definitely, once you get out there, the perspective changes a little bit and all of a sudden these waves were seeming a lot bigger than they did on the shore and we were going up and we were going under and I had a hand and now I was starting to get a little concerned that maybe this was a bit more than than uh, we could handle but I, I looked to her and she just had this smile on her face she's having the time of her life out there and the, the wind and the waves and I said sweetheart how, how is it that you have no fear at all how is it that you're out here and you're just having a blast and she looked at me like it was the most obvious thing in the world. She said, well, well, Dad, it's because you're with me. It was that simple. It's because you're here. It's because you're with me. It's because you're holding my hand. And I trust you. And I know that you would never let anything happen to me. And so I want, I want to encourage us this morning as we bring this time to a close that there is a great God and there's a glorious gospel. And that's not just a message we proclaim. That's hope that we can anchor our hearts into this day in the midst of this season and and I want to encourage because I believe this is not a season for us to sit on the shores in the midst of discouragement and disappointment but the Lord is calling us out with him the, the best waves can always be found in the midst of the greatest storms you see crazy surfers out there in the midst of hurricanes the greatest adventures that would be had and there is an encouragement for the Lord for us. You know, who, who's to say that it's not in the midst of this season, this time and this age, that all those things we've been pressing in for, that we've been seeking the Lord for, you know, let's not sit on the shores of discouragement and disappointment. Let's grab a hold of His hand. Let's keep our eyes upon Him. Let's have a much greater faith and awareness of His reality to pull us through, to provide, to comfort, to give us everything that we need than upon the waves or the darkness or the pandemic or anything else's ability to overcome us. That's where I want to land this morning. Let me pray for you. Father, just thank you for this time that we've had this morning. I thank you for that reality of your goodness and grace. I thank you that you are a great God, that you've come as light in the darkness. You've come to end that futile searching the fumbling around in the darkness. You've opened our eyes to see you and that you're a God who purposed us, predestined us before you laid the foundations of the world, that we would know you. Thank you for that reality that we can place in the midst of this season and every season our trust in you. There's nothing greater than your power. There's nothing that can quench your love. There's nothing that can come against us when we make the Lord our God, our refuge. So remind us this morning, I pray, of the greatness of who you are. May that be the message that we proclaim in this hour and this season. And may that be the hope that we cling to. We pray in Jesus' name.